Last week, we talked about the anxiety vaccine, how anxiety is so prevalent right now and what we need to think about as prevention. And today we're continuing that conversation. It's about how we talk to kids about their emotions, their moods. So we're doing part two because now we're going to talk about emotionally equipping our kids, which is really just such a wonderful broad way of vaccinating them against all sorts of difficulties as they move forward. Welcome to Fluster Clucks, where we talk worry and other big feelings with Lynn Lyons. You're here because your family has some anxiety issues or you want to prevent them. I'm your co-host and Lynn's sister-in-law, Robin, and I'm here to ask your questions. And hi, I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I will help you find your way. So when I'm talking about emotional management, I'm talking about developing skills. And I think it's so important as we move into this next year that we really focus on the emotional management skills that we can teach our children. That's an incredible way to immunize them against emotional difficulties. Talking about emotions, putting words to them, and giving your kids the ability to navigate their own emotional lives is really so key to their mental health. Okay, guys, here's the thing. Last week, I talked about the anxiety vaccine because I'm all about prevention. And I want to talk more about that because I want to get specific. We need to do better talking to our kids about their feelings, about emotions, about anxiety. We need to get ahead of this thing. And as I listened to the episode last week, and you should too, by the way, I thought to myself, you know what? Robin and I have to talk about this more. I'm going to talk about the hows, how these conversations sound, the words that you can use, because it's not complicated. It just needs to be repeated. And when you say it's not complicated, you're just saying there are a lot of preventative methods that are really conversations parents can have with their kids. Yeah, it's not complicated. Like you don't have to know a ton about anxiety disorders. You don't have to understand the complexities of it. You know, one of the things that of the many things that drive me crazy about my profession is this language that we use that makes it sound inaccessible and sort of psychobabbly and like it's really hard and different than just being a normal human being, a normal parent with your normal child. How do we talk about these things? It's really so, so important that we get away from this idea that we have to protect our children from feeling difficult things, that we have to help eliminate strong emotions. And there are so many opportunities just in your day-to-day life to begin to have these conversations, to talk about things so that kids are better equipped. I talk a lot about emotional management, but I also talk a lot about kids being emotionally ill-equipped to handle things that life is going to throw at them. There's a reason why they're ill-equipped. Yeah. That's what I think we all have to really accept. They're all born emotionally ill-equipped, right? So you get so so you've got to start talking talking about it. And you and I have talked about this because we're farther ahead in terms of talking to kids about substance abuse and alcoholism and that kind of stuff, because that conversation got started probably about 30 years ago with certain people bringing that into the forefront. Virtually every family has some history of substance abuse or depression or anxiety. 
we are very clear and have been very clear with our kids about the costs of substance abuse and the risks that they have in their in their own selves because we know it's in the family. I think we need to do the same thing with anxiety and depression in a very consistent and very, I don't want to say casual way, but sort of like this is what we talk about. This is something that's really important for kids to know about and to learn about so that they can learn how to manage their moods, their emotions, their relationships. It just needs to be woven in on a very consistent, almost daily basis. I want to throw out a point because after last week's episode, a little thought that was needling me was that we have this parenting culture now that's clearly fostering anxiety and you are unpacking all the elements of that parenting culture for us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there are so many parents who think being a good parent in air quotes is about what you're protecting your children from. Right. We have language that's not serving us. I don't want to discuss certain negative aspects of the pandemic. I don't want to discuss certain things about this. I don't want to share this, this or this. And so people are wanting to create this very simple story for their children and we're denying them the complexity of the world. Right. If we talk about how to, how to avoid the emotional messiness of life. You're hovering over your child in a way that you are ensuring that they're having an easy emotional experience or a positive emotional experience. Right. Of course we want our kids to have positive emotional experiences. It's just that giving kids good emotional health isn't about eliminating the negative stuff because it's going to happen. Right. So, so if you think of a concrete example, if there's, you know, and again, this comes up all the time, you've got a kid who has only gotten A's in school and then they come up against a teacher or a subject or something that's really hard for them and they're getting a C and they have no way of getting through that. They have no way of tolerating that they've come up against something that's not going to give them the result that they're used to getting. And I think that's. That's what we need to really talk about consistently with our kids. And, and it means allowing them to have bad experiences, not putting them into it on purpose. But there are schools I know that have put into place very strict policies about parents being able to lobby for the teacher that they want their child to get. Because they're so afraid that what if their child gets a teacher that isn't a good fit for them? That is a really good experience for a kid to have, to have a teacher that's not a good fit for you. Coupled, of course, with experiences that you have a teacher that's a really good fit for you, that's the kind of thing that you think that you're stepping in and providing this wonderful benefit to your child, and it's going to backfire. It's absolutely going to backfire. It's sort of a wake-up call of what we might think of as really positive parenting that has a very active role. Mm Mm-hmm. We have to take responsibility. Are any of these things preventing our children from developing essential skills for tolerating things that aren't fun, aren't easy, aren't rewarding in that traditional way? Learning opportunities abound. But, you know, you always use the phrase elimination culture. Mm -hmm. Parents want to go in and sweep it all out so the kids don't do it. Right. And again, that's that makes perfect sense. Of course, we want to do that. But it just means that if we're looking at the rates of anxiety and depression in our young people now, we can't look at those numbers and say, yeah, we've got this thing figured out. We've got to look at those numbers and say, "Okay, so let's 
let's see how we can do better. And it was terrible before the pandemic, which you mentioned last time. Yep. It was terrible before the pandemic, and it's worse now, and already hearing the catastrophic predictions about where it's going to go. But this is something I've been talking about for years, and it's something that a lot of people have been talking about. I'm actually sitting in my office, and I'm looking at my bookcase, and there is a book in front of me entitled The Prevention of Anxiety and Depression, Theory, Research, and Practice. That book was written, I think, probably 15 years ago. This isn't a new concept, but I think that the idea of preventing anxiety and depression has turned into preventing bad things from happening. Those are two very different things. Preventing something from happening is very different than saying we are going to prevent anxiety and depression. And that's, I think, where they've gotten tied up and, and, and sort of interwoven in a way that's not helpful. Is it progress that resilience seems to have been so trendy recently? Resilience, resilience. So that's definitely a good thing. Yeah. And the thing about resilience, so again, then it got co-opted. So resilience and grit are good words. And there are researchers that looked a lot at resilience and a lot at grit. Where it got sort of taken over is it got hijacked or co-opted by the achievement culture. So I'm going to create a resilient child so this child can get all A's, or I'm going to create a resilient child so this child can succeed. So resilience and grit take it outside of the achievement culture, and they're really talking about emotional resilience. They're really talking about handling failure and being able to talk yourself through difficult things, not I'm going to be able to power through five AP classes because I'm resilient, because I've got grit. You know, emotional management is a learned skill. And I think this is where the anxiety audit comes in. Why don't you talk about the course that you've created? Right. And that's what we really wanted it to be. That's what I wanted it to be. Because as I say so often, we can get caught up in the psychobabble of things and pathologizing things, of worrying about what's wrong with our kids. And I really just want to simplify it. I really want to put it in language that says, as plainly as I can say, there are patterns that we get caught up in that we don't know that we're even doing it, that they are not uncommon at all, particularly after the year that we've just had. And it really is so important for us to take a step back, look at our own patterns, figure out how we're perhaps transmitting our own stress and anxiety to our kids, and to figure out how to interrupt that. That's what the anxiety audit is about. It's for parents to go through to really recognize those anxious patterns for themselves. Right. You know, I meet with so many families and the parents that I talk to love their children, adore their children, want the best for their children. And so they come in saying, I need to help my child. And sometimes the first step is really, how do you look at your own patterns so that you can help your child? Right. And you can't even talk about this without the context of 2020 as well. Of course. Almost every parent had a very challenging year for a variety of reasons. And those anxious patterns probably intensified. We went through 2020 being challenged to handle big emotions, feeling overwhelmed, sometimes even feeling panicky. And if we remember that anxiety wants certainty and comfort, 2020 was not that year. 
The Anxiety Audit is a self-paced course that you can take to learn how to break your seven patterns of worry. The link's available in the show notes or at flusterclucks.com. So let's take a hypothetical family that you are seeing in your practice Mm -hmm. who has a child who has anxiety. Mm -hmm. The parents and the child are now starting to seek help and try and manage. Yep. So, and the parents do a lot of eliminating. What kind of eliminating do you see that is pretty common for those parents to do and that they don't realize is something to unlearn? They will say things often in a way that lets the child know that the child can't handle something. So there's a lot of reassurance and a lot of saying phrases like, you know, if you need me, I'll be right here. Or, you know, I had a family where they had the baby monitor in their 12-year-old daughter's room, the baby monitor in the 12-year-old daughter's room, because the parents said, we never want her to feel as if we aren't right here, that we will always be here if she needs us. So when you give that message all the time, you're saying to your child, we don't trust that you can handle things alone. So the elimination is stepping in, making sure, you know, we, we've heard the, the phrase snowplow parent and helicopter parent, trying to get ahead of anything. So going and talking to a coach or talking to a teacher or talking to the drama teacher to let, the, let those adults know that their child is fragile. So they're saying, my child is fragile. I want to let you know this ahead of time because they cannot tolerate anything that is emotionally challenging. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the parents who do that, this is what I think is such a fascinating conundrum Mm -hmm. because those parents feel like what they're doing is completely out of love and they may not have an easy time understanding harm. I'm sorry that if that's maybe too strong of a word, but these are patterns that are that are not helpful. Where do you is it an easy thing for them to sort of understand this from your perspective or do you feel like a lot have a real mental block accepting that this habit contributed to leading them there? I don't think that they have a mental block or an intellectual block. A lot of them know that they're doing it and a lot of them can, you know, sort of say like, "Oh my gosh, I know. I know." It's actually more rare, uh, very rare actually for me to have parents that sort of say like, well, I do believe that's the best thing for my child. They really say like, I know, I know, oh my gosh, right? Uh, like I had a mom say to me recently, she said something to her child and I said, well, next time try try saying this ex- instead. And she said, oh, when you say it, it makes so much sense. So it's not like they're resisting that. I think actually that parents who do this, they do it from a place of love, absolutely no doubt about it, but they're also doing it from a place of fear. Mm -hmm. And it's the fear that gets in the way of them being able to do what they intellectually know they should do because they're afraid of harming their child. They're afraid of their child not feeling loved. They're afraid that they are going to do damage. People don't know how to do things. My mentor said when people don't do things, oftentimes it's because they don't know how to do things. They're not self-sabotaging. There's not this unconscious force at play, right? That's just not how I think parents and children operate. They just don't know how to do it. If, if you're talking to a child who has difficulty making friends, 
And so a parent might say, well, she'll start a new friendship and it'll be going along pretty well for a while. And then she does something that destroys the friendship. You know, somebody in my field might say, well, I think she sabotages the relationship. No, she just doesn't understand the rules. Mm -hmm. And so she called the friend. This just actually happened with one of my clients recently. She called the friend or texted the friend. The friend couldn't do it to do what they wanted to do. And she proceeded to text the friend every 20 minutes for about four hours to find out if she was available to play. The friend who was getting the text was like, oh my gosh, that's not a good social skill. So when we're talking about parents who are doing this, it's out of love, it's out of fear, which is really powerful. And lots of times it's just about not having the language or the script or the skills or the recipe because nobody taught them how to do it. So if you don't have the skills in the recipe and you have a lot of fear and you love your child more than anything else in the world, it can be hard to interrupt those patterns. And just to clarify, you have obviously been able to raise your two boys with all of the tools that you have studied professionally. Yes. Does that mean that that eliminated your parenting fear? Uh, No, it did not uh, eliminate my parenting fear. In fact, I will tell you, my son just drove to North Carolina yesterday, and I was worried about that. And I resisted you know, I, I obviously I don't track him on his phone or anything like that. I don't do any of that. But at about, I knew it would take about 15 hours for him to get there. He left at six in the morning. And so at about 8 p.m., I sent a little text that said, give your mumsy a thumbs up when you arrive. That's all I said. <laughs> That's what I said. I said, give your mumsy a thumbs up when you arrive. And at about 10 o'clock, I got a thumbs up emoji. You know, of course, I'm tempted to text more and say, how was the trip? How did it go? Did you hit any traffic? Blah, blah, blah. But I didn't. I just said, have. And then he gave me the thumbs up and I said, have fun. I love you. And he responded, thanks. I will. And that was the end of that. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm trying to, I, I do practice what I preach, but it doesn't mean that. What it's easy I'm, always. Yeah. It doesn't mean that the congregation inside of me is pushing against the preacher all the time. Oh, God, how is he? Where is he? It's hard. I consciously think about these things. I really do. And, you know, there's another parent involved in this who doesn't do this for a living. So there are a lot of conversations. And actually, one of the advantages of the fact that he travels with me or used to travel with me and listen to me all the time is he sort of absorbed a lot of this stuff just by us talking about it and him being around me. But it's a lot of work to to consciously do this. Yeah. I'm lucky my husband listens to our podcast while he works out. So he oh. stays up to speed with it too. And it's, we talk about every episode. I learn something. I hear it. I think of how we've made certain choices and how do we keep tweaking it. And I just think it's important to share. Like it's, it's this isn't easy for anybody. No. You know, even if you have this information, We had an experience this week. My daughter just completely blew off an after-school lesson with one of her teachers. Yeah. She's in high school, and I had to make a conscious choice. We have a very friendly relationship, but I still understand the boundary most of the time of I'm a mom and not a friend. Mm -hmm. And it was an opportunity for her to to own her huge mistake of not maintaining her own schedule. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So she was she still felt badly because then she looked at her phone and the teacher had been sending her several texts. Are you there? Oh. And so I said, you got to call her. Like, I know she looked at me in terror because she was embarrassed and she didn't really mean to inflict, you know, discomfort with her teacher either. And I know and it was so painful. I channeled you. And I didn't get involved in a story. I simply said, you call her right now and you explain that you forgot. And then if the teacher was going to charge me, I was actually going to make my daughter pay me for that lesson Mm -hmm. to remind her, you have your own schedule. You knew you had a lesson. It's not really my fault at this point when you're 15. You got to remember your own lessons. Yeah. It turned out that she she was honest with her teacher and the teacher, I think, then took pity on her and said, well, let's just make up for what we can do right now. Oh, I was ready to do something kind of unpopular with her to make sure that she took ownership of that. Yeah. And I immediately went to my husband and explained the situation and said, this is a teaching moment here. Are we on the same page? He was like, yep, we're on the same page. She has to take full accountability of this. But those are the kinds of things. There could be other parents who might have texted a lie to the teacher. Mm -hmm. You know, you have kids who blow off therapy. Oh, yeah. I mean, Zoom calls, it's really easy. to They just hit end the meeting. Or I had one. Wait, they just end your meeting in the middle of a session? (laughs) Yeah, sometimes in the middle of a sentence. It was a really, it was sort of surprising. At first, I thought I was having a technical problem. And then I was like, oh. (laughs) He just did the Zoom equivalent of standing up, walking out of my office, and slamming the door. How are those New Year's resolutions going? Well, many are destined to fail. But lucky for you, here's one easy resolution idea that we gave you that we can all make, and it will make your life easier. It'll be kinder to our planet, and it will transform the way you do laundry in 2024. And that is switching to EarthBreeze. EarthBreeze looks like dryer sheets, but it's ultra-concentrated laundry detergent, and it couldn't be easier. You just throw a sheet in with your laundry in any temperature, and you watch it dissolve in any wash cycle, hot or cold. There's no measuring, there's no mess, there's no fuss, there's no wasteful plastic jug. EarthBreeze fights everyday stains and odors, giving you an amazing clean every time. The best part is you'll never run out again thanks to EarthBreeze flexible subscription that you can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties. And you'll save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Shipping's always free, and it comes in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. So switching to EarthBreeze won't only make laundry day easier for you, but it will also be easier on the planet. So help me make plastic jugs a thing of the past. And if EarthBreeze doesn't end up being the 2024 update of your dreams, you don't even have to return it. Just let them know it's not for you and you'll get a full refund, no questions asked. Get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash flusterclucks. That's earthbreeze.com slash flusterclucks for 40% off your subscription. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. So when you're a parent, you're going to have your fair share of big talks with your kids, right? About all sorts of big topics. One of those big talks should involve money. And Greenlight can help with that. Greenlight is a debit card and a money app that's made for families. It allows you to do instant money transfers. You can get real-time notifications of spending. You can manage chores. You can automate allowance. 
I know with my kids, we really wanted to help them see the cause and effect, right? If you spend money now, you're not going to have it later. If you earn money now and you save it, maybe you can put it towards some big purchase that you're looking forward to. This is called financial literacy, and it allows kids to build independence, to learn how money works, to make them better savers, better spenders. The Greenlight app also comes with an in-app financial literacy game. It's called Level Up, so that kids can build money confidence through videos, bite-sized challenges, mini games, and more. More than 6 million parents and kids use Greenlight to learn how to make responsible financial choices. So stop putting off the money talk and start putting your kids on the right path. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash fluster. That's greenlight.com slash fluster to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash fluster. But as you tell that story, here's the thing that sort of warms my therapist heart is that Oftentimes, a a parent might have said, I'll text the teacher for you, or they might have started off by saying, you know what? You forgot. You need to take responsibility for it. And the the child might have said, oh my God, mom, this is so humiliating. I cannot do this, right? It's so embarrassing. And then they might have said, all right, well, I'll, I'll do it for you this time. The moment that is so important in that is to say, I know this feels embarrassing, I know that you're humiliated. I know that you feel badly about this. I know that this is going to be an awkward conversation. And what you need to do right now is you need to have an awkward conversation and to own what you did. And it's not going to feel good. Let's not pretend that it is. And that's emotional management. And when we talk about this elimination culture, it's when we step in to make sure that our kids feel good all the time. The problem with that is that then everybody develops the expectation that you're supposed to feel good all the time. The thing that also was hard for me in that moment and what I was trying to do or when these difficult situations come up is don't editorialize it Mm -hmm. and add a lot of my own layers. I was trying to be very factual. This happened do this, do this without like getting into it and adding a lot of extra words. Sometimes I think that we can walk ourselves into traps there and backpedal. I kept it factual because I didn't want it to go into a shaming conversation. Yeah. And that's that's exactly what you needed to do to say, here are the facts of the situation. Here's what you need to do. And it's not going to feel good. Right. And you can throw some empathy in there. Like, I totally get it. When I forget things, I feel terrible too. You need to do this. Yeah. I think the over talking, it's funny because we've, I've, I've said this many times before, I'm sure, is that I talk a lot about, I talk a lot, but I talk a lot about having conversations with kids, but it's knowing that line between talking too much, lecturing. I love this picture that you're putting out there as you're telling this story of, I gave her the facts. She's, super smart and super responsible, you know, that this wasn't some huge pattern. Like she she screwed up. She's going to feel the sting. You're going to let her feel the sting and you're going to tell her what needs to happen. Now, then somebody might say, somebody might be listening and saying, well, what if she said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Ah, you're the office. You're, I hate you, Bob. You're the worst parent ever. Blah, blah, blah. Right. And then you want to, you, you tend to escalate with them. That's when you keep it in that same way. I know that this feels bad. I know you feel awkward. And then you could even say, there are going to be many situations in life in which you are going to have difficult conversations. This is one of them. 
And you're right there. You're just normalizing the fact that conversations can be hard and awkward and you need to do it anyway. One of the incredibly important things to talk to kids about is how do you set boundaries with people? How do you set boundaries? How do you not take on too much in this achievement culture? How do you say no to people? How do you step back from things and figure out what you want to do and what you don't want to do? Those boundary-setting conversations are often difficult and awkward. You know that. I know that. Saying to kids very frequently, I know this is going to be a difficult conversation or I know this is going to feel uncomfortable, you're going to do it anyway, is just an incredibly valuable thing for kids to hear from us all the time. What it's really about is you're helping them become articulate with their own emotional experience Mm -hmm. rather than try and limit it. Right. You're constantly giving them the message that A, it's normal. So this is when, you know, when we talk about childhood fears, right? So it's very normal for kids to feel things, to be afraid of things when they are certain developmental stages. You know, they discover that people are going to die. They discover that people get sick. They watch a scary movie and they learn about zombies or vampires. All of those normal developmental fears are great opportunities to talk to kids about how they have a great imagination and or how it's hard when we learn about big things in life And how do we manage that? How do you have a conversation with a kid, with a child who learns that everybody dies, that it suddenly dawns on them, that their parents are going to die, that they're going to die, that their grandpa is going to die, that their dog is going to die? How do you have that conversation? You know, saying to a child, it's hard when you learn these big things, isn't it? And now that you're six or now that you're seven, you're beginning to understand these things. And when people die, we have all sorts of feelings about that, don't we? And you just keep having those conversations. You know, it's a twofold thing. We actually did our anxiety audit recently, the live Mm -hmm. event. You said something in it that was very powerful to me because you were talking about irritability and, and being able to articulate as parents when you're in a bad mood. So that there's like a front-loading education around your own emotions with your kids. Mm -hmm. Like we've talked about controlling and and preventing our children from experiencing negative emotions. But the other key component that you've talked about is for parents to be emotionally literate with their own emotions and model that for their kids. Yeah. And it occurred to me, let me ask you this, because I'm going to push you for a distinction. Because one of the things you always talk about is just fake it till you make it and be vanilla ice cream. And what you mean by that is just be mellow and neutral And yet there's also an important part to be able to say, you know, I'm grouchy. So I think I know the difference, but why don't you walk us through the difference between a parent sharing a healthy range of emotions and talking Mm -hmm. about them while still knowing when to grab onto something more neutral? So being vanilla ice cream is the really important skill to have when your child is escalating so that you don't get sucked into their emotional tornado. So say, you know, with your daughter, if she had come back at you that she wasn't going to call, you know, she wasn't going to call the teacher or or if she had tried to blame you, right? Well, it was your fault, mom. You should have blah, blah, blah. And then if you escalate with her, I have told you, young lady, blah, blah, blah. It was not my fault. Blah, blah, blah. That's where you want to be vanilla ice cream is when they're escalating. 
It's not your issue and you're not going to join into the maelstrom with them. On the other hand, as you said, there are times when we're going to have emotions and there are times when we're going to be grumpy or we're going to be irritable, where we're going to be sad, where we're going to be grieving. And you want to let your kids know that it's normal to experience those and you want to just give them information about it. So if you know, say there's a loss in the family and a parent is crying and the child comes across the parent and the parent is crying. Sometimes parents feel like, oh my gosh, I need to like wipe my eyes and get myself together. You you can say, you know what, I'm just feeling really sad because I'm I'm thinking about pop-up or I'm I'm feeling really sad because I'm thinking about they had to put their dog to sleep or something like that. What you don't want to do in terms of emotional regulation is that you don't want to lose it with your emotions in front of your kids in a way that feels overwhelming and scary to them. If they're trying to get ready for school and you're lying on the living room floor wailing your heart out about something for 20 minutes and they're sort of standing there thinking, I got to get on a Zoom call, that's not helpful. So it's almost like there's three categories. There's one, be neutral in vanilla ice cream when your child is escalating and you need to be the grown up. Category two is being able to model for them feeling emotions and then also modeling for them emotional management because emotional management doesn't mean suppression and negation and hiding. So it's it's great if you're nervous about something, if you say, you know, gosh, I'm feeling anxious about this, you know, ooh, my tummy's feeling a little weird. How about you? And then the third category, which we don't want to go to, is when you are not capable of emotional management and you are just letting it rip and it's overwhelming for your children and maybe for other people around you because they are witnessing your inability to manage your emotions. That's scary. Does it happen every once in a while? Sure. But those would be the three categories that I would put it in. It does. You know, since the podcast started and you have dropped these very thoughtful nuggets, you had mentioned in another episode, there's a certain level of healthy arguing and conflict that children witness their parents do, Mm -hmm. that it's healthy for them to see a conflict and see its resolution. Yes. I think that my husband and I sort of always felt like keeping that separate from the kids. And to have that more thoughtful approach of letting them see a little bit of conflict, Mm -hmm. talking about it afterwards, letting them know we're grumpy or angry or sad in an, in an, in a, in a way that's neutral too. Cause I've always, I've always explained to my kids, even if you feel really, really angry, you can still powerfully convey that by simply saying, I'm really very angry. You don't have to punch a hole in the wall. Right. Yeah, and then when you also if you if you can argue or disagree in a way in front of your kids and then they also see the resolution, you're showing them that there are rules of engagement for conflict. So there are rules that you have in the house that you don't there's no name calling when you're angry or there's no swearing at each other when you're angry and there's certainly no physical abuse or throwing of things when you're showing your kids how to disagree even if the emotions are high but again the differentiation is not out of control and so this brings us back of course to making sure that you're capable of your own emotional management because you can't demonstrate what you yourself don't know how to do But kids should see a range of emotions. They should see their parents 
sad. They should see their parents frustrated. They should see their parents angry. They should see their parents anxious, not in that out of control way, but in a way that says to kids, it is a normal experience for human beings to feel things. It's a normal experience for you to be frustrated or grieving or angry and then show them how to manage it. And to say that out loud, oh my gosh, I am so angry right now. I think I told you the story about how we got the flat tire on the way to my mom's house one time and I couldn't, it was the second flat tire that we had gotten in like a week. And I was like, oh, we pull over and I'm like gripping the steering wheel. Like, I can't believe we got another flat tire. And I look in the rear view mirror and there are these two little like sunscreened goggle-eyed kids like, ah, and I just said, oh, you guys, can you believe it? We have another flat tire. I'm feeling so frustrated right now. I am so frustrated, but you know what? I need to take a deep breath here because we got to figure out what to do next. This is before I had a cell phone and it was 95 degrees out. So I could feel myself just wanting to be like, ah, and then I see these little, these little eyeballs in the rear view mirror. I said what was going on. I expressed the fact that I couldn't believe we had gotten another flat tire. And then I said, and now we need to figure it out. So, and then one of them said, well, I think we should get out of the car because it's like 95 degrees and it's really hot in here. I said, I agree. Let's do it. And then it all worked out fine. The culture of emotions in a family, both what the children are allowed to experience and then how the parents are modeling their own experiences is probably the key foundation Mm -hmm. for a family to have positive mental health, right? Absolutely. Yep. The other thing too that is so important is and as your kids get older, is to talk to them about their moods and their thoughts and how they can learn about themselves. Because when kids start feeling a certain way, right, it can be overwhelming. And I talked about this in the the previous episode too, right? Parents worrying about their kids being anxious, or we know anxiety and depression are so connected because people start feeling depressed about being anxious. So we want to be able to say, your moods will come and go. All sorts of things influence our moods. And I want you to learn about how you work. I want you to learn about your moods. I want you to learn about how you manage them. I want you to learn about what works and what doesn't work. You know, I don't like the medical model of a lot of things. And it drives me crazy when people say depression is like diabetes. But I I can use that analogy right now because we, we, my son had a a very close friend, still has this friend who was diagnosed with type one diabetes when he was a little boy. There were all sorts of things that he needed to learn in order to manage this, including his emotional responses because they were highly tied into his diabetes. But in order for him to be a functioning adult, he had to learn about himself. And I feel like we can say the same thing about our emotional literacy, our emotional awareness, our moods, our patterns, teaching kids and saying very directly to them, I know you're in a bad mood. And part of what you're learning right now is how do you manage the way you feel on the inside based on perhaps what's going on on the outside? How do we help you get through this? Not eliminate it, but how do we normalize it and teach you how to manage your moods? So, so critical for kids. 
I have had incredible teachers in my professional life that have given me this language, that have taught me how to talk in this way. I am so grateful to them because it's also helped me as a parent. I've also had incredible teachers in some of the teachers of my children that taught me this language and that modeled this for me. But how often do we hear, you know, if we're if we're talking about kids taking a a health class, How often are kids taught in a health class that one of the things that's so important for them is to be able to tolerate their moods and emotions and to be able to learn about themselves and to figure out what helps and what doesn't help? And you know what? When you are really anxious about something, a stress ball is not going to help you manage your social anxiety, right? What are the skills that you need so that you can tolerate feeling all of the different ways that that kids feel and using that language. Of course you feel that way. I think of families who, if they regularly talk about emotions, mm-hmm. their kids' emotions, and they're, tr- they're trying to engage and teach emotional intelligence in mm-hmm. that household. Yeah. There are still probably parents who do that, who are trying to manage their own anxiety and still manage their kids' anxiety, even with those conversations. So it's not just that. There are other pieces to the equation. Tell me about boundaries and understanding the boundaries of behavior from the parent's perspective and the kid's perspective of talking about emotions, talking about feelings, but then when you're managing worry, what are the rules? So important for kids to know how to set boundaries and for parents to know how to set boundaries. So there's a an article on my uh, website, a blog article that I wrote about bad behavior and anxiety saying to parents, you can't forgive all sorts of bad behavior and call it anxiety. You can recognize where it comes from, but you have to be able to set boundaries with your kids about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. That shows up a lot in anxious families because the lack of boundaries means that kids aren't told no. They aren't taught how to delay gratification They aren't given limits in terms of expectations, right? That you have to do something that you don't feel like doing. All of those, you know, the general word of boundaries, meaning that we set expectations. There are things we have to do. There are things that we can say no to. How do we know the difference? And then how do you tolerate when somebody sets a boundary with you? Which basically means how do you tolerate not getting what you want? How do you tolerate having your expectations not met? How do you tolerate when you're not able to do something? This comes back to the anxious parent being able to tolerate their child being upset. What kind of bad behavior do you see that's pretty common of an anxious family? Like what what are the ways that anxiety and bad behavior do come together? Certainly in tantruming. So, and when I say tantruming, and this is just an example of a child learning that if they are explosive, if they are angry, if they threaten, if they have a tantrum, that that's a way that they can get what they need. Now, if we're talking about anxiety as the cult leader, this is an approach that a child might take because they are terrified of doing something. They don't want to do something. And so they get really good at having big, huge, scary emotional reactions that get people to back off. If I see that, if the tantruming is the threat 
that the child holds over the family, then we need to talk about allow, you know, what I'm going to teach the parents is you're going to set a boundary. You're going to say that you're going to do this. And then you're going to have to tolerate your child losing it for a while, but then not move into the elimination when the child is losing it. Doesn't mean that you're not there. Doesn't mean that you don't say, I understand what you're going through. Doesn't say, doesn't mean that you abandon them, but being able to recognize that that tantruming, and I use the word tantruming because there's adults can have tantrums too, as we know, being able to say, I know that you're feeling really anxious right now, or, and I know that you're feeling like you can't do this right now, but this is something we're going to work through together. And then it just becomes the threat of a tantrum becomes a very controlling thing that happens in anxious families. I am really working on improving my diet by making sure that I get the best quality products, organic foods, And I really want to make sure that I'm not using harsh chemicals in my home. Thrive Market is my go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials. The convenience of getting everything online and then quickly shipped to my doorstep, that is a huge time saver. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. I can use their filters to suit my lifestyle needs. So maybe you're looking for organic snacks for your kids, or maybe you're gluten-free. As a Thrive Market member, I save money on every single grocery order. You will too. On average, I save over 30% each time. They even have a deals page that changes daily, always has some of my favorite brands. When you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash flusterclucks for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash flusterclucks. Thrivemarket.com slash flusterclucks. Do you think seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist would be helpful, but you don't have the time to actually find one? And then like, when do you have time to meet with them? Try Talkspace. By doing everything online, Talkspace has made getting the help you want easy, accessible, and affordable. It's in-network with most major insurers. There's no need to commute to appointments. You won't miss time at work or have to line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. Talkspace lets you send messages to your therapist so you don't have to wait for your next session. Therapy can help you shift your perspective and find tools to cope in difficult times. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, substance abuse, relationship issues, and much more. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with a licensed therapist today, 
Go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. So anyone who listens to you or has read your books understands it's always the process and not Mm -hmm. the content. Yep. The thing is, we parents understand you sometimes better when there is a hypothetical content Mm -hmm. that it's easier to relate to. So give us an example of an anxiety cult leader in the family, a child having a specific worry that then how does that affect what's A, B, and C in that story? The child doesn't like to go to new places because they feel very anxious about stepping into new situations. So we might see that the pattern has been in place for many, many years that when a child goes into a new place, first of all, the parent might do a lot of that sort of reconnaissance work, right? Getting ahead of it, making sure that everything goes the way they need it to go. But the child refuses to go to new places. So the family begins to accommodate the cult leader by not going to new places. So I had one family that had only eaten in the same restaurant for 10 years. I had another family where the whole weekend schedule was based around the fact that a child refused to go to the grocery store. So what then the child would do is that if they if they said, well, we're going to go to this new restaurant, then the child would say, if you take me into a new restaurant, I am going to scream and kick and I'm going to throw the water glasses and you are going to be sorry. Now, I knew that this was a kid who was really anxious and nobody had taught this child about anxiety. Nobody had taught the parents how to manage the worry, how to talk about it. What does worry say? How do we step in? All of that process stuff. So the content was, I'm not going to go to new places. The cult leader said, and if you take me to a new place, I'm going to embarrass you. I'm going to freak out. I'm going to be destructive. And so don't even try it. So then the next step is, how do we understand how worry works, how anxiety works, and how do we start stepping into this, but you've got to build the skills first. You know, I'm going to keep talking about this so that everybody expects that the worry is going to show up. I talk very frankly with kids about, I understand that the cult leader is in charge and I understand that you found, you and the cult leader together have found a way to avoid things. I talk very frankly with the parents about how it is that this behavior has been cemented over time and how we're going to start interrupting the patterns. So then we're going to start to do some exposure work and we're going to make it a game and I'm going to talk to them about how it works and I'm going to give a name to the cult leader and all that stuff that I do in treatment. Now, if we take that back to sort of normal developmental in, it, it, things in kids and how can we be preventative with this, it means that if you have a kid that's a little nervous about going to new places or starts showing that when they're four or five or three or whatever, then you start talking about that right away and you start saying, you know what, it's normal to be scared about going into new places. So when we go into this new place, let's you and I look around and see three things that we like about this new place and three things that we don't like about this new place. And so you begin to normalize the process of feeling uncomfortable when you're stepping into a new situation. So there's the treatment that happens sometimes when the temper tantrum has already become an established pattern. And then there's prevention that we do when we start seeing the hesitancy show up. I'm sure so many families have seen different hesitancies show up because children's lives were so disrupted. It's a good thing to hear if certain kids who have been very remote and very much at home, I would imagine many of them will feel a little nervous stepping out and coming back into school or just being out in public or going into a store. 
Yeah. So it's talking about it and saying, of course, you feel a little nervous. You haven't been doing this in a while, but we're going to go in and we're going to have a good time. It'll be fun to go to Target or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. And you also you also just say, like, it'll be weird. Won't it be weird? Right. I just say that I have parents say that to kids all the time. Isn't it going to feel weird to go into Target? Isn't it going to feel weird to get on an airplane? Isn't it going to feel weird to go to a restaurant? You know, I just say it in that way, like, of course, it's going to feel weird, isn't it? And that way, we just normalize it and we make it a part of the experience. So part of that prevention strategy is really sometimes planting the seed that it's normal to think something is weird, right? Or as that nice neutral word, Mm -hmm. even before they started thinking that they needed to start worrying about it. Yeah, of course, not saying, and I guess I, I try not to put things in the negative, but not saying, you know what, it, it, uh, this is going to be totally fine. And you know how to go to Target and everything is going to be fine when we go to Target. If you just get ahead of it a little bit and just say, yeah, isn't this, this is going to feel kind of funny for me. You can even just say it to them about you. Gosh, I feel a little weird going into Target or it's going to be kind of strange when everybody goes back to school because we're going to have to get used to that routine again, isn't it? You just normalize, normalize, normalize. Normalizing every reaction. Yeah. Is the most consistent strategy for prevention. It's called being permissive with, not permissive in terms of let them do whatever they want, but being permissive with the possibilities. So if I'm talking to a kid, I might say, I don't know. I I say, of course, a lot, but I also say, I don't know. I don't know how weird it's going to feel for you when you go back to school. It's going to be kind of interesting, isn't it? Like you're going to come back and tell me, was it super weird? Was it a tiny bit weird? Was it a weird for five minutes? Was it not weird at all? I don't know. I don't know how weird it's going to be. I don't know what's going to happen. That's, again, sort of tolerating the uncertainty, which is the opposite of anxiety. Anxiety wants certainty, wants to know. So parents step in and try and give them all the information ahead of time as if they can predict exactly what's going to happen. And that's that reassurance that happens. I'm sure you're going to feel fine. I'm sure the dentist is going to be so nice. I'm sure it's not going to hurt when you blah, blah, blah. But say, I don't know. When you get a shot, I don't know what it's going to feel like for you. It's being permissive for the possibilities. So we should really try and unlearn, because I definitely heard this a ton growing up. It'll be fine. Yeah. Like, just never say that ever again if you can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds good, doesn't it? Why wouldn't you? Like, everything will be fine. It's like a disguised, benevolent way of denying the emotions, but it's still denying the emotions. Yeah. And so you can replace it with, you know what? You can say something that's reassuring and caring, like, I'm right here with you, or we're going to figure this out. Or you can handle this. And I'm going to help you get through this, which is different than everything's going to be fine. Because we say that we say that when kids are feeling anxious or worried or sad, it's, it's a way, certainly, it comes from that place of saying, you're going to be okay. And I even think that's okay thing to say. You're going to be, you're going to be okay, right? This is hard, but you're going to be okay. Or I'm right here with you. Or, you know, all of those things that say to them, I get what you're feeling. There's room for what you're feeling. Of course you feel that way, but to not say in any way you shouldn't be feeling that way or it's unusual or inappropriate or abnormal for you to be feeling this way. At the beginning of the podcast, after a few episodes, you really had given me my mantra as a parent for this past year that definitely made the year go better than it could have, which was always, of course you feel this way. And I 
I know you can handle this. Yeah. Those two things as we approached firsts or disruptions and disappointments, those are all of the reactions that I keep trying to train myself to lead with. Yeah. Life is unpredictable. I say that all the time. Life is uncertain. So I know as parents, we want to try and step in and make things as certain as possible. It just, that doesn't work. I'm sure we're going to keep talking about this and talking about this. But right now I see a huge issue with kids and with teens who really have expectations of themselves and of their emotions, of their capabilities that set themselves up for self-criticism, for disappointment, um, oftentimes for shame, because people have been telling them for years and years and years, right? You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. And then when they're not fine, they get freaked out about that. Being uncomfortable with a range of emotions, is it really inhibits the ability for kids to manage what they need to manage. We sat around as a family after you and I did the anxiety audit this past weekend. Mm-hmm. And I asked everybody in the family, how do we tell when each of our family members is in a bad mood? Oh, what a good question. And I wondered if how my kids would describe their own moods and what they would say. And do they know how they show anger and frustration? How do they see us modeling anger and frustration Mm -hmm. too? And then giving them the power and the permission to say, you have the right to say, you seem kind of grouchy. Because yeah. sometimes, you know, as parents, we don't know we're being grouchy because we're in it. Mm-hmm. We're in that full, overwhelmed, full plate mode, and you don't realize you're being irritable. Mm-hmm. We were talking about that, and we hadn't ever had a conversation like that before. How'd it go? It was good. And, and I think that it that's one of the things to do is to... Keep talking about those emotions. I'm going to laugh because we can talk about Inside Out, the Pixar movie that you still haven't seen. Uh huh, it's true. <laughs> but you will see. But that's like if you have younger kids, it's a great starting point to pick one specific emotion and talk about that at dinner and to really bring emotions into the family's conversation and make it a common dialogue. Yeah. Because the more we're talking about emotions, our reactions, and our awareness of those, it's just not going to hurt. It's really only going to help. And one of the things that I often do, which I've said before, but I'll say it again, is that if you have a child that has a difficult time talking about emotions or you bring it up and they sort of look at you like, what are you talking about? I use animals all the time. So how do we know when a dog is angry? How do we know when a dog is happy? How do we know when a dog wants to play? How do we know when we should step back? Because that gives them the practice of observing what's going on with other people. And the other thing too, that's a really great thing to talk about is how sometimes do we mistakenly interpret things. So if somebody is angry, and what a great thing it is to say, are you angry about something? Because then somebody can say, no, you're misinterpreting, or I'm not frustrated, I'm just really absorbed in what I'm doing, which is something that in my family, we talk about a lot. How do we know what's going on in somebody else's head if we don't ask? And that's something that we've we've been doing a lot of, the four of us, because we we need to pay attention to that. Are you feeling frustrated by this or you look irritated or what's going on with you? They're not always thrilled about me asking. I think, you know, just let let me say this. A lot of people talk about having a therapist for a parent 
in a not very positive way. Just like even in movies and TV and people that I talk about, they're like, oh, my dad was a psychiatrist or oh, my mom was a therapist. And even I, like if I'm supervising somebody, a therapist, and they're working with a client, and they're like, also, you should know the mom is a therapist. And we go like, oh, God. I actually, and this may be a huge blind spot of mine. So I feel like I'm not an annoying mom as a therapist, but I very well could be. I'll have to ask my kids about that and get back to you. That was a dangerous comment. (laughs) (laughs) You preface with blind spot, but it's so funny. Would any therapist say, I am an annoying therapist? Well, that's what I I guess I don't know. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Like, do I not know that? And I think I've even asked my kids. I like to think of myself. Yeah, we all like to think of ourselves as the exception to the rule, right? Sure, like, sure. Like every other therapist, mom or dad, must be so annoying. But I don't do that, so I'll have to follow up on that. I try not to be therapisty, and I think just in my style as a person, I'm not like, oh, so tell me how you feel, right? I don't think I'm like that. So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode. And thanks for joining us for another episode of Flusterclux. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.